0: And I was trying to do something else, but just by learning in the open, by publishing thoughts, and by just engaging in conversation online of things I was curious about, it led to one of like the best professional experiences in my life.
1: On this episode, I'm joined by Wes Wagner, digital nomad and former head of growth at Microverse, a coding bootcamp with the unique model that came out of YC's most recent cohort. Wes splits time between Indianapolis and Medellin, so we talked a lot about remote work and asynchronous communication. We also discussed how to use technology to deepen our existing relationships and uplift ambitious people in overlooked areas. Hope you enjoy I'm
0: born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana. To me, it's always been a rising tech hub because when I was in high school, a, a company was bought for like $2.5 billion by Salesforce. And so now it's like Salesforce's second largest headquarters. And yeah, I, I'm Midwest raised. My, my three holidays are Thanksgiving, Christmas, and in Indianapolis 500.
1: So you've grown up in the Midwest. Right now you are splitting time between Medellin and also Indianapolis. Can you talk a little bit about what the logic behind that was? It's a little bit longer
0: story, but basically my sophomore year of college, I wanted to drop out. And that's just because I, I started being a little bit bored by my classes and the things that were giving me the most energy was learning online and using my skills to then work for a tech startup remotely. And so then I, I guess throughout college, I started seeing that like, oh, wow, like people are paying me these skills. I'm connecting with future employers. I'm learning a ton. This whole remote thing is going to be huge. And so Maybe I didn't phrase it like that then, but to me it was, you know, when it came time to graduate, it wasn't a question of where am I going to get a job? It was, where do I want to live? And I'm a big, big family person, but I'm like, where do I want to spend the rest of my time? And so while in college, I sort of got obsessed with the whole digital nomad movement, the sort of weirdos that were like cutting edge of remote work. And I'm like, I want to be one of them. I want to live abroad. I want to live in Southeast Asia or Latin America. And so my junior year of college, I tried that out. Studying abroad was the excuse. And so I picked Buenos Aires, Argentina, because I heard it was a big digital nomad hub. I liked it, but not enough to go back. And so when I just graduated, I'd been at home for a couple months. I'm like, where am I going to go next? I like Googled, what were these big digital nomad hubs? And it was pretty much like Chiang Mai, Thailand, Mexico City, Mexico, or Medellin, Colombia. And uh, I'd been to Mexico City. I hadn't been to Southeast Asia, but I wanted to be closer to home. And so I tried out Medellin and uh, kind of fell in love. And so now I split my time between here for when it's it's cold, back at home. And then I go back at home for those holidays.
1: (laughs) Okay. I would imagine that you're thinking to split time between Medellin and Indianapolis goes a little bit beyond just that Columbia has great coffee and that it's warm. So can you talk a little more about that choice?
0: Yes. As I started working remotely and seeing how you can really connect with amazing people all around the world from the internet. I kind of started thinking more about the whole idea that you are the average of the five people that you surround yourself with. I I like to think of that in more of a modern context. It's like you are the average of all the conversations and content you surround yourself with. Because we can be engaged in conversations online, in Twitter, you know, books influence us, blogs influence us. But of course, in-person interactions influence us a ton too. And so I, I sort of started thinking about like that optimization, if you will, of like, Being not just somewhere where I wanted to live because of coffee or the weather, um, but also for my community. And so I've always been into entrepreneurship and Indianapolis was like this rising Midwestern entrepreneurship and tech scene. When I was thinking about where I wanted to live that wasn't necessarily Indianapolis, I still wanted that tech and entrepreneurial and like creative scene. And so places like Medellin are becoming hubs of that because there's a lot of objective quality of life measures here that are really high like it's 70 degrees year round and the cost of living is also insanely cheap and so you start to get people that are moving to these places like expats and digital nomads because of that and then it starts to like attract people that want to be around those people and so it's become this really interesting hub of uh, entrepreneurs of artists I haven't met as many musicians but it's become like an amazing place where I've actually like encountered a bunch of serendipity in person here like i've run into people that work in tech in new york or san francisco and they're visiting for just a couple weeks or i've run into people that just are thinking very similarly and so i I think as you know san francisco and, and new york and of these hubs of creativity get more and more expensive and as we get more and more connected you're starting to see these distributed hubs of like creativity and entrepreneurship
1: yeah i think it's really interesting it definitely falls in line with the trend of remote work which you have been Uniquely exposed to, and I think it also runs counter to the idea that you need to go to the center of where the action is. Totally,
0: and, and, and I guess I'll just like dive into that a little bit more. Indianapolis, when I was growing up, was a rising tech hub, but now there's hundreds uh, of startups. Medellin is still very much like where I'd say Indianapolis was maybe 15 years ago, but it's going to get there. And I think that too many people think when they start their career, they think about optimizing for like the quantity of people that they can meet in that space but I don't think enough people think about really just optimizing on like the quality and depth of the relationships in a direction and so going to a city like San Francisco or New York as a young person that's really interested in kind of expressing their creativity and maybe starting a business you just don't have enough time and resources because it's so expensive and you probably have to work a full-time job but also there's not enough space to think intentionally either about well, do I want to go into this sector, or this specific sector? And you can only do that by giving yourself like time to think, time to like learn, time to kind of fail. And when you have to pay rent that's $1,500 or $1,800 a month, that's a lot harder. Don't get me wrong. I, I've worked at this remote company, Microverse, for the last 14 months. Four months I spent working in person with them. I think there's this nice blend you can do nowadays of like being, let's say, in San Francisco, for part of the time if you want to go into tech or visiting for a little bit. And kind of following things online. Yeah,
1: I think it's also important to highlight that you have a unique skill set, and that's enabled you to help grow a company that's focused on enabling other people to build up those tools as well. Can you talk a little bit more about what Microverse does?
0: Yeah, so Microverse is a global school for remote software developers. Basically, what we do is we train people that we want to become software developers for nine months. It's completely online. And we don't charge them anything until we help them get a job. So people that are listening might know about Lambda School. It's similar to Lambda School or similar to other sort of models out there that train people to become software developers in that like we don't charge them anything until they get a job. But we're different in that we actually accept people from all around the world and we don't have any teachers. All the learning is done through peer-to-peer dynamics. And so that kind of makes us able to take these risks and uh investing in people all around the world because we just have a a much lower overhead and so i joined 14 months ago as the first employee to do marketing and that's kind of evolved to growth so i do less of the branding and creativity and communications and more of the like analytics, like how can we experiment with the workflow program, that sort of stuff.
1: It's a really interesting approach and it's not necessarily one that's been, at least to my knowledge, been tried before. How does paired programming work? So, so great
0: question and I wasn't familiar necessarily with this model either until I joined, but pair programming is this concept in standard computer science education where uh, you have one computer and you sort of take turns uh, being the driver, which is the driver is the person that's actually on the, the computer you know, typing away. The navigator then is the person right next to you that's kind of looking over your shoulder and you know saying, hey, why did you do that? Do that? Or maybe we should do this. And so we applied that online and we, we do the same sort of approach. It's just like you, you share the computer, if you will, through a Zoom call. And if a student runs into trouble, they have like mentors they can go to that are more experienced in the program. They also have their kind of small group of five or six people that are at all different levels in the program that they can go to as well. But I think what I've learned at Microverse is just what I see coming in education is similar to what I see has happened in like the taxi industry. Meaning like I think the next wave of these huge educational platforms, it's going to be much more like an Uber approach where the companies that are going to rise are not going to own the content, not going to employ any professors. They're just going to get really good at connecting people to the resources and connecting people to other people just like Uber's you know really really great at connecting a rider and driver in the right moment and so you know I think that that was kind of a really lucky opportunity at Microverse that I was able to see how we sort of fell into this peer-to-peer approach because there was this concept of pair programming and I see it becoming something that's uh, a lot of different educational institutions are, are going to develop but I think you're already starting to see this there's some startups that are rising that are just paid mentorships or rather someone will help you get a job uh, and they'll be your mentor and you won't have to pay anything until they help you get that job. And so it's you know much less like education, but it's more mentorship. But I see a lot of institutions bundling all these services together.
1: Yeah. I think what you spoke to is kind of just this, really interesting optimization problem with job retraining and just job training in general, where are there areas abroad? Because I certainly have a much narrower perspective on this. Where are areas that need students that are very well versed in computer science or software development?
0: Well, I, I think that the conversation becomes a lot more interesting when you talk about the need for like, digital trades. So you got the physical trades, which are maybe being a mechanic or weld or whatever. But you're seeing a lot of like digital trades that are coming, like being a Facebook advertiser or coding in a specific language. And so these are things that for a long time, people employed people in their own cities. But with the rise of remote work, talent exists all around the world. But the opportunity for them to maybe learn that digital trade and then connect with a job um, has not yet been there before. And so as we kind of advance more and more towards remote work and as we have more and more tools that are able to facilitate remote work, um, that is like also unlocking opportunity for someone, let's say in Nigeria, that's only earned $3,000 a year to spend a couple months of their life learning um, a digital trade such as software development or digital marketing and then three months later or or six months or nine months, uh, maybe even a year, getting a job where they can earn $25,000 a year. And so that's kind of what we started seeing at Microverse, where we've had people in Uganda go from earning $5,000, $6,000 a year to to earning $60,000 for U.S. companies. We've seen people from Colombia drop out of their university, get a remote job in three months, earning more than the average computer science graduate in Colombia. So I think that's kind of where the most opportunity lies, is that there's this huge, huge arbitrage opportunity between really talented people all around the world that you can kind of train a specific skill and it might take three months, six months, nine months. And after that they can get paid much higher than their local rates, but then someone in San Francisco doesn't have to pay a hundred thousand dollars from like an entry level developer. It's just, there's just so much to be done in this area of digital trades.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting application. So kind of just in the future of education and remote work, where else, either for startups or maybe different communities, do you see opportunities?
0: Yeah, so I think you know, digital trades is an easy one in a way because um, when it comes to sort of measuring someone's potential, if you will, that could take a lifetime. And the technology to assess someone throughout a lifetime and you know predict their potential earnings or predict their potential start a business. That's like really costly to implement, uh, to to gather all that data and to try to create a predictable machine. And so something where you can train someone for three months and help them get a job earning, let's say, you know, five, ten times the amount. But um, I think a lot of other interesting spaces are around entrepreneurship and kind of determining who could be a potential future entrepreneur that can create a huge company and employ a bunch of people and kind of investing in them. And that's a much tougher equation to optimize around because how do you predict the next Bill Gates before they start Microsoft? And, And so I think there's ways to create incentives to empower people that are really good at assessing human potential, really good at assessing potential entrepreneurs and creating incentives for them to let's say, invest in someone in Columbia that has shown that they're working on their nights and weekends to try to start this business, but they haven't been able to quit their job and do it full time. Well, maybe after a couple months of working, you can gather some data and be like, hey, maybe we should invest in them and you give them like a stipend of, let's say, $2,000 a month to try to work on this. And maybe they, they show you more traction in those, like, three months, and then it's like, hey, let's actually invest in this person's company um, or, or let's give them an income share agreement or whatever. And so I think that area is fascinating because there are so many interesting problems around the world that I th- people in the U.S. don't necessarily see. Like, I think, uh, you know, the, with the rise of, like, blockchain and cryptocurrency, That's a really great example of something that in San Francisco, there's like a lot of theoretical talk about like, Hey, here's what this is going to be used for in the future. But the most practical use of cryptocurrency today is the fact that next door to me here in Colombia, you know, is Venezuela where they've had a ridiculous amount of inflation and people can carry literally bags of cash that are worth nothing. And so how they're using cryptocurrency is like literally just to transport value in and out of that country. And so they're actually using, you know, this technology and they have, these sort of fascinating problems that you don't see necessarily in the United States. So I think creating incentives and models where you can invest in those people that are tackling those really interesting problems that people in the U.S. just haven't even been exposed to, I think that's a really fascinating space.
1: And I think that just speaks to why you have kind of a unique perspective on some of these different areas that are overlooked or underserved. And you've, you've tweeted about how you would rebuild YC in a more modern context. Do you want to expand on that?
0: I'm definitely not the first person to talk about it, but I think I have a more unique perspective because I am very, very bullish on remote work and um, not having to be anywhere to forge a career or start a business. And so YC was started in the era when it actually took a lot of money to start a company. You had to buy servers, you had to hire engineers, but now the cost of starting a business is insanely low. Like anyone could kind of duct tape together these no-code or low-code tools to create processes and systems uh, to scale online businesses. And so with that in mind, okay, if you don't have to you know, invest $150,000 and you don't necessarily have to have people in one particular spot, and we've also seen you don't necessarily have to have like a Harvard degree or maybe even worked at a rapidly growing startup to start something, what I would do is something where you invest in a lot more people at a much lower investment. And so instead of maybe bringing together, let's say, 100 YC founders that are all from the U.S. that maybe have these you know, credentials to back them, like Harvard degrees or former Stripe employees, whatever, and you're investing one hundred thousand dollars each, let's invest maybe in like 500 people. And let's bring them together to a place like Medellin or Mexico City, Or Chiang Mai Thailand where you can live really well for $1,500 a month and I'm talking about people that don't have as high of an opportunity cost so for example someone that has worked at uh, Microsoft for 10 years probably isn't that interested in getting $1,500 a month to live in Medellin but maybe like an 18 or 19 or 20 year old from the states or a developing country is like yeah sure that sounds exciting that sounds fun I think it's kind of like an alternative career path people leave high school they go to college and in college they learn they have new experiences and then after college some people might want to live abroad some people might move to new city and so i i think a really unique interesting option for some people is this sort of modern yc where you determine who's a really high potential person you invest in them but maybe investing ten thousand twelve thousand fifteen thousand dollars by like just supporting them as they live somewhere for five six months and yeah, kind of, you know, putting them together with all these other really ambitious folks. And I think you'd, you'd start to see a lot more entrepreneurship coming, coming out of that. And I don't think it's, it's been necessarily been tested yet. I don't think people know that that's like an option to go abroad and start a business.
1: Yeah, I think what comes to mind for me is something Alex Danko wrote somewhat recently about how kind of the big differentiator for Silicon Valley right now is their social capital. Just because we, we have these different tools that make it so easy to build new businesses and try things out and try to prove out these different concepts. Is there a way kind of along the lines of what you were just talking about to unbundle this social capital for people that don't necessarily want to be in the Valley?
0: Yeah, so, so great questions. Expertise in tech, for example, and the capital in tech is still very much like in San Francisco. So I'm not sure I would maybe talk about the unbundling, but more about how do you incentivize, I guess, the spread of, of that? And so, for example, if I create something like this modern YC, maybe what I could do is say, hey, fund manager, I'll let you get kind of proprietary deal flow or access to this data of these really ambitious folks. If you kind of contribute a little bit of your time to mentoring some of these younger folks, or maybe you think this group or that group are the next generation of founders of billion dollar companies. So I would create an incentive where if they can contribute their expertise in time and mentorship... They could have the opportunity to maybe invest, uh, for example, in these high potential people. And I think when you create that modern YC model and really take that digital approach of, of tracking a lot of data of people building their companies week over week and tracking the interactions people are having, I think you can start to get some really unique insights and get some asymmetric information on who the high potential people are before the rest of the market knows. And I think that you can have some serious sort of network effects there so i'm exploring these these theories and these ideas but yeah i think it's a really fascinating thing to to think about is, is how do you create organizations that foster and grow social capital
1: yeah i think that's really interesting so your ideal is something that is an accelerator and the goal is that these high potential people are going off and starting companies. Do you feel like there are other ways to capture social capital?
0: Yeah. Honestly, I've been thinking about this a lot since since I left Microverse. I think there's so many different ways to capture social capital. I think a lot of people have started doing it in the unbundled sense. So you see education, you see job placement, you see all these different things sort of unbundled social capital. Like I mentioned one of these companies that let's say they will provide mentorship in data science to help you get your first like data science job. And then after you get that job, you have to pay, you know, percentage of your income. Well, that's sort of one transaction, but I think you can sort of layer on these transactions to bundle these, like the education, the placement, all these different services together to like supercharge that social capital. Cause if you're just placing people in jobs or just teaching them, you're not necessarily like growing this, this social capital over time as much as, let's say you help someone get their first job you create incentives for them to come back and like train the next generation or you create incentives for them to like help others get jobs and so i think in the future these like isa companies and the ones that are really working on like mentorship and peer to peer education i think you're going to start to see like a layered approach to incentives in general so let's say i can get my first job and and i have an isa and if i earn above like $50,000 i will owe like a certain amount where can you put the incentives so that I can come back and so that that organization can also help me get that next job where I want to earn maybe over $100,000. Maybe after that, like I want to earn maybe over $200,000, whatever. So I think that you're going to start to see organizations sort of like Lambda School that are going to try to incentivize their graduates to like come back and maybe something is as simple as if they help the new graduates get jobs, they can get a discount on their ISA. Or if they already have paid back their ISA, maybe they just get money. I think there's a lot of unique ways to play with those incentives that I don't think a lot of people have experimented with yet. And these things are only possible because the cost to collect data and like to kind of monitor data to enforce these things is lower than ever. And that's kind of why we've seen like the rise of income share agreements. Like you haven't been able to do that 20 years ago. Cause it was hard to have all the APIs to like monitor someone's bank account, for example. So I think as the transaction costs, Go down for assessing people's potential and, and connecting in with their digital footprint. I think you're going to see more and more opportunities to create social capital. And I guess the biggest example we've seen recently is that you can get in a stranger's car and, and take a ride wherever because we've created those incentives that have turned social capital, which is maybe I used to just trust my neighbor and I maybe just ask my neighbor to, to you know bring me to the grocery, and now we've. Actually creating incentive structures to turn that social capital into financial capital in financial markets of like there's a supply of drivers that are willing to give rides to you know a certain distance, and there's the demand of drivers. And so if you extrapolate that out as the cost of collecting data gets lower and lower, you can create some really interesting organizations.
1: Yeah. And I think the concept of converting social capital to financial capital combined with Also, aligning incentives is really interesting just because, as the bull case for a lot of like coding boot camps is that there are enormous network effects that students will get these different jobs and out of goodwill, they're very grateful to the school that they got these new higher paying jobs, they'll go back and help future students, which will make it easier with each continuing cohort. But you spoke to Mm -hmm. trying to create some financial incentives for individuals like, hey, here is like a referral bonus if you're able to recruit another student Does that play it all into the way that you think about like social CRMs or personal CRMs? Because I know tech Twitter loves to talk about that.
0: Yeah. So I think the concept of converting social capital to financial capital is fascinating and it helps kind of accelerate progress. Like, you know, Uber wouldn't be possible, but now that we can convert that social capital of that trust between two people into financial capital, we've been able to get more people to where they're going quicker, right? When it comes to like social technology, it's really, really tricky to try to collect the data on what really matters. So I guess here's what I mean. So in the last decade, there's been a lot of social tech that has been released, but the only data they can really capture is like, yeah, they can assess your personality and stuff, but business models are inherently driven by advertising, you know, glued to a screen because they can get more advertising dollars. Where really the the incentive should be like, shouldn't these services want to just make me like happier? And, and so I think, it's really tough to kind of convert this social capital around, you know, connecting to people so that they're really happy and trying to turn that into financial capital. And I don't think we're going to see that until like, you know, Elon Musk's Neuralink project becomes a thing. And maybe there's some cryptocurrency for happiness by facilitating two connections. And now you maybe you can trade your happiness tokens for Bitcoin, whatever. So that's like very, very, very far down the line. And I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon. But I do think that as people sort of are becoming more wary of, I guess social technology and how they're maybe not necessarily incentivized to create positive sum social capital. They're more incentivized to create these like zero sum games of status. Like you want to post some photo on Instagram so like people think you're cool and people are like giving all these likes, whatever. I think as people become more wary of the downsides of these things and how more time you're spending playing those status games and, and glued to social media. The, the less happy you become. People are going to start to like invest in other tools, but it's it's not that the business model is not necessarily aligning social capital and turning to financial capital. It'll probably just be, I'll pay $20 a month for some service. that's like, hey, you haven't caught up with Jake recently. Maybe you should call him. I think there's a lot of people that are trying to work on this issue of like a social CRM. No one has like necessarily solved it yet because I think too many people are taking the sales CRM approach, which is, Hey, let's create technology that helps a company optimize revenue. And they're trying to apply it to your personal relationships, but you're not trying to optimize revenue necessarily. You're trying to like optimize your happiness. And so again, like social capital in the business world of like a salesman's relationships with all these people can be quantified, but your relationships in your personal life can't necessarily be quantified to right now. And so Yeah. I'm really interested in that space. I keep on following along with people that are experimenting with different tools in that space, but I think as I sort of enter this exploration period, I'm actually trying to build some of my own in that space. And my sort of theories around that is that I think there's a lot of interesting things that are empowering really cool, like social technology right now, which is, you know, the cost of transmitting voice to text has never been lower. Uh, And the cost of analyzing that text has also never been lower. And so in order to create technology that helps us become more human and have healthier, better relationships, I think it's going to be more like uh, you can speak to your phone. and be like, hey, you know, I just caught up with, you know, X and Y buddy. Uh, I should probably catch up with them in a little bit or maybe in a month. And maybe there's some, I guess, algorithm or something that just learns to prompt you to reach out to a friend in a month or whatever, instead of like a sales CRM approach of like, oh, hey, you need to email this person at this time or you need to text this person at this time. So yeah, I'm really excited about that space.
1: Yeah, uh, a couple points. So you brought up asynchronous communication, Mm. which I assume is something that you were able to leverage at Microverse. And then also a couple different pieces in the social CRM space, both like professional networking, and also personal, maintaining those close relationships. How, how do you think those fit together?
0: Yeah, so I uh, I think, I mean, one, as the world gets more globalized and as people can meet friends online and they live in different time zones, it's kind of hard to schedule calls that always overlap. At the same time, remote work has also created like time zone problems. People want more flexible work options. They don't necessarily want to be... In an office 9 to 5, they don't also want to be just in front of the computer 9 to 5. Maybe they want to work slightly different hours. So, asynchronous communication becomes really important there because you want to make sure that you can send a message and someone else can read it whenever they kind of get to it. Remote organizations that try to do synchronous communication kind of create this this culture of anxiety like, I always need to be at my computer, I always need to be able to respond, and there's that constant red dot of notifications and it interrupts you and you can't get as much deep, deep focused work. And so I do think it's helpful for like quick iteration around problems, but I think you really need that space to like separate and really do deep, good work. And that only happens with asynchronous uh, communication. I, I think the U S has been slow to adopt voice as an asynchronous communication medium. I think we're, we like texting each other, but around the world, like if you go to different countries, people love using WhatsApp and a lot of people love using like WhatsApp voice notes. And so I think that it'll eventually get to the United States, but I think that at least at Microverse and some of the past companies, like we've, we've mixed asynchronous text, we've done asynchronous voice and video. So Loom is a great software for quickly running through something and communicating something through voice and video, but it can be recorded and used later. You know, there's also times for like synchronous video calls, but synchronous kind of text chat, there's just a smaller area for that. Because usually it's like, hey, we should just jump on a quick synchronous video call instead.
1: Yeah. At first glance, as someone who's not super familiar with WhatsApp, I was definitely struck by the product's lack of bells and whistles. Like, there aren't red dots or a million different notifications pinging you all over the place. And I was kind of grateful that it does seem a little more respectful of your attention. But yeah, uh, I guess that brings us to the present. What are you most interested in? Because you've talked a little bit about future of education, remote work, social CRMs.
0: So right now I'm kind of in this exploration stage. So I'm interested in these very different, at first it seemed like very different things. Like I love the social CRM space and you know I've, I've been fortunate enough to be very like, intentional about like, where I live, how I spend my time, maybe like what I eat and how I work out. Like I, I love my Fitbit because it like, helps me be more intentional about working out and getting in that habit. But the thing that's been the most difficult to be intentional about is like, just keeping and maintaining and building those relationships with the people I really care about. And that's just because I think it goes back to that whole conversation of social tech so far has been built around advertising driven business models that aren't necessarily in line with our desires to live more intentionally, have like better and more meaningful relationships. So I'm interested in that. I'm interested in how do we create organizations and structures that can help people learn at scale, help people get jobs at scale, start businesses at scale. And what I'm doing kind of in the short term is I'm doing a lot of writings to try to explore both these things and what I've kind of come out with is this theory around social capital and basically the gist of it is that as the internet has made us more connected than ever before it has also drastically increased the cost of social capital meaning beforehand let's say when we're little towns and tribes and villages your options for jobs are pretty simple it's like oh there's those three things or maybe options for a significant other like oh these three people But now there's like a search cost involved. There's so many people and so many jobs. How do you even start that? There's so many different kind of costs associated with aligning social capital. And I think it goes to my interest in both these spaces of like a social tool and a social CRM tool. And also like an educational organization around aligning incentives to accelerate human potential. So I want to keep on like ironing out that theory, writing about it. But I'm actually, I'm heading to San Francisco in about two weeks I'm going to spend uh, about six weeks there, eight weeks there as a part of this next cohort of, uh, it's called an On Deck Fellowship. It's a little bit like what I've described where they're bringing together a lot of people that are looking to start businesses that maybe just haven't had the opportunity to meet their potential co-founder, to get feedback from people that are interested in similar sort of stuff. And I don't know, I'm going to see what happens. But that's kind of what my thoughts are right now. I'm going to do a little bit of consulting on the side with like growth and marketing. But I strongly believe in that whole idea that you don't necessarily need to know exactly what you want to do next. And I mentioned earlier that when I joined my careers 14 months ago, it was because I'd previously quit my job and I was trying to do something else, but just by learning in the open, by publishing thoughts and by just engaging conversation online of things I was curious about, it led to one of like the best professional experiences in my life. So, um, and personal. So I guess I, I kind of have faith in that whole process of learning in the open and it'll take you where you want to go.
1: That's awesome. I assume that some of the content you consume definitely influences your thinking. What are some books or podcasts that have had a large impact on your life?
0: Yeah. So I think Zero to One is a fantastic book by Peter Thiel. So people talk a lot about in the tech world about the book Sapiens, but I actually think the follow-up book is even more interesting. It's called Homo Deus and it's influenced quite a bit of my thoughts around growth and what I do for work. But I think that's a fascinating book. I think the most impactful book recently has been Courage to be Disliked, and it's all about Adlerian psychology. But I, I also just encourage people to not just read like, what everyone's talking about. I think it's really interesting to read books that aren't, are not completely unrelated to see parallels. And in that realm, a book I've really enjoyed is, I think it's called 80 Days. It's a nonfiction book, and it's about two women in the early 1900s who race around the world in opposite directions. And there's a lot of interesting thoughts there that I've, I've drawn parallels to. You know, at one point, a woman was like, holy cow, I'm on a train going 60 miles an hour. How can the human body take this? And it kind of makes you think, what, what are the things like now that I'm thinking of that are not even possible? But we're going to look back in 100 years and be like, huh, can't believe we, we thought that way. So that's an interesting book, too. Very cool.
1: Okay, so where can people keep an eye out for your writing that you're working on right now? And also, where should they reach out to you, especially if they're in the Bay Area trying to meet up?
0: Yeah, a great, great question. So I'm on Twitter at West. And you can just email me at caffeinatedwes at gmail.com. And my website is westonwagoner.com. So Weston is uh, with an O, W-E-S-T-O-N. and Wagner is just W-A-G-N-E-R. And that, that's kind of where I'm migrating some of my writing to. But what I usually do is I publish some of my thoughts on Twitter. Uh, eventually, I'm like, okay, these things are related let's publish a blog. And so they'll, we'll see links like actually subscribe to, to like a newsletter, right? Kind of publish a more regular version of that.
1: Yeah, we'll link those in the show notes. Wes, a thousand thanks for coming on the show. It's been awesome. Yeah, it's been
0: great to be here. Thank you so much, Ethan.
1: This has been Ethan Lee Tyson with Worth. You can find show notes below or at worth.card.co. That's card with two R's. Thanks for your time.